this week on the podcast, two very different kinds of social interactions. First up, is it possible for a child to be too friendly or loving? Jennifer Latson will be here to talk about her new book, The Boy Who Loved Too Much. It's similar to Down syndrome in that the average IQ is about in the 50s, but there's a whole spectrum of abilities and disabilities in Williams syndrome. What's so great about being awkward? Daniel Maneker will join us to discuss two new books on the upside of social discomfort. If you're socially awkward, you also have a kind of obstacle to get over, which is your own awkwardness. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we in the wider world are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Jennifer Latson joins us now. Her new book, her first book, is called The Boy Who Loved Too Much, A True Story of Pathological Friendliness. Jennifer, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. So explain what Williams syndrome is. Williams syndrome is sometimes called the opposite of autism, and people who have it tend to be completely socially uninhibited and really driven to connect with other people. So they're extremely outgoing, extremely friendly. They have these warm, engaging personalities, and they can't really turn it off. So they kind of love everyone, trust everyone, and run up to strangers and hug them. Thus, the boy who loved too much. Are there any physical aspects to this syndrome? There's actually a lot to this syndrome, and I focused on the social aspect. But there's a lot going on. It's actually caused by a genetic deletion, a very small genetic deletion. So it's 26 genes that are missing from chromosome 7 which is really a small number compared to the 20,000 genes in the human genome. But it causes all these unique features. And so there are a lot of health issues that come with Williams syndrome, including a really severe heart defect that's very uncommon in the general population, but very common among the Williams population. And it can be very, very serious. But then there are other symptoms, including intellectual disability. People with Williams tend to have really bad spatial skills and really good music abilities and really good verbal abilities. So they tend to be really strong storytellers and they can really kind of fool you by making this great conversation and you might not think they had an intellectual disability at all. Well, in what ways does the intellectual aspect of the disability, the cognitive component, manifest? It's similar to Down syndrome in that the average IQ is about in the 50s. But there's a whole spectrum of abilities and disabilities in Williams syndrome. So there are some people with a nearly normal IQ, and then there's some people who are even more delayed than average. And it's interesting because unlike autism, there's a very specific known genetic cause. And so everyone with Williams syndrome is missing these same 26 genes, and yet the symptoms manifest so differently among this group. You've mentioned autism already a couple of times, and it sounds like the genetic cause, at least as far as we know, is different, that there are some interesting overlaps between autism spectrum disorder and Williams. Absolutely. That was the interesting thing to me because socially, they are really opposite in almost every way. You know, people with Williams make too much eye contact. They get too close to people. They don't stop talking to them. But in a lot of ways, they're really similar. So the boy that I, the boy who loved too much, his name is Eli. And I think if you didn't know what Williams syndrome was, you would just assume that he had autism. And some of the ways they overlap are fixations, like he's really obsessed with floor scrubbers and vacuum cleaners. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people with Williams are. 
and also with anything that spins, so ceiling fans, pinwheels. And he has a habit of perseveration, so he'll kind of repeat phrases over and over. For a while, he was doing one scene from The Lion King that he really liked, and he would just say the lines over and over and over again. So there are some people with Williams who have a dual diagnosis with autism, but the geneticist who I really talked to a lot for this book was saying, well, that's not really helpful because there's actually a lot of syndromes that have symptoms in common with autism. That doesn't mean you have both. Before we get back to the story of Eli and, and his mother, Gail, and are those both pseudonyms? Yes. Okay, so we'll talk about them in a bit. But I just want to get a better sense of, of how prevalent is this? It's about 1 in 10,000 people have Williams syndrome, and it's a completely random genetic mutation or deletion, and it doesn't seem to have any demographic links, so it's pretty universal that 1 in 10,000 figure is common among all parts of the globe and different ethnic groups, and there doesn't seem to be any link to, say, like Down syndrome and autism are linked to older parents. That doesn't seem to be the case for Williams. So it's about 30,000 Americans who have it. Well, how do you figure out that your child has it? Is it something that's evident when they're born? Well, there are facial features that are common to Williams syndrome. So that's another similarity to Down syndrome. But the features in Williams are described as elfin. So they include an upturned nose, high cheekbones, pointed chin, wide smile. And they look kind of like what you would see in a picture book of fairy tale elves. That is is usually evident from birth, but you kind of have to know what you're looking for. And so it's so rare that a lot of pediatricians just don't recognize it or don't think to test for it. But there is a blood test that can say conclusively that you do or don't have it. But a lot of children who get diagnosed early come across the radar of cardiologists because they have this rare heart condition and that tends to trigger the Williams diagnosis. But, you know, there are people who are getting diagnosed in adulthood. There's a woman that I wrote about in the book, who was in her 80s when she was diagnosed. So some people just still don't know about it. So let's talk a little bit about Eli and his story. When did Gail realize that something was different about her son? Well, she knew pretty early. I mean, by the time he was a year old, he was already missing a lot of the milestones. She had some friends who had babies the same time that she did. And so their babies were crawling and then walking, and Eli wasn't even crawling yet. He was diagnosed with failure to thrive. He was just tiny and he was colicky, cried a lot. And so the pediatrician, you know, was kind of addressing symptom by symptom all these different problems, but really didn't know what the common thread was. And then the breakthrough for Gail was one day she brought Eli to his daycare center. And one of the other mothers at daycare happened to be a geneticist, and she recognized the features and had recognized them already, but I think had struggled to to approach the topic with Gail. So she mentioned to Gail, well, his facial features and some of these symptoms could be related to Williams syndrome, and you should go see a geneticist and have it checked out. So she was lucky in that way, although she didn't feel lucky at the time. The subtitle of your book is A True Story of Pathological Friendliness, and I think there's a tendency to just think, well, what's wrong with being friendly? What does that look like, pathological friendliness? People who have this disorder are really fun to hang out with, and I just enjoyed my time with Eli so much because he's so genuinely excited to see you, but also to see anyone. But the the feeling is very real, and, you know, his face just lights up when he sees another person, and 
So that's the good part. And of course, the bad part is if you were an unscrupulous person, he can't distinguish between people who wish him harm or wish him good. So he's extremely vulnerable. And that was the biggest fear for Gail in the three years that I spent with them was he's just going to open up to the wrong person and anyone could take advantage of him. So she really just kind of never let him out of her sight. One of the questions that a syndrome like this raises, or not questions, but issues that this raises, is the tremendous role that genetics play in personality. Because friendliness, we don't think of as a symptom or of, of, a, of a syndrome, of a, of a genetic disorder or of a medical issue. We think of it as just who you are. Did you explore that in the book? That came up in a few different ways because it's exciting for geneticists that they get to study this disorder because it's got such a small genetic footprint, but then these kind of huge and easily observable traits. So they do spend a lot of time looking at what's different in the genes and the neuroanatomy of people with Williams. So some of the things that they found is differences in the way the Williams amygdala works, and that's kind of our, our fear center in the brain they seem to have a different level of social fear, like no social fear. And so one of the studies found that actually people with Williams syndrome didn't demonstrate any racial bias, which made them different from pretty much every other group of humans, because all of us past the age of three show an implicit preference for our own ethnic group. And they just found their conclusion was, well, they just don't have that fear center that activates this, you're different than me, I need to be wary of you kind of response. So that was really interesting. And then another thing that they discovered is the hormone oxytocin, which gets released for most of us in very small doses at very specific times when we're bonding with another person. And so it's what gets released when a new mother is nursing her baby, really intimate moments like that. And in Williams syndrome, it seems to be just kind of flooding the brain at all times. So people with Williams tend to have a baseline level of oxytocin, that's about three times what everybody else has. So, and that was a question that I explored as well. If they love everyone, is that love real or is mm-hmm. it sort of a chemical aberration? But if you think about it, I mean, we all respond to oxytocin in our brain. That's that's a thing that cements relationships. So their feelings of love are no less real than ours. It's just that theirs is more prevalent and they feel it more of the time. How malleable is this? Is any of it treatable in in the sense that can you teach a child with Williams, even just in terms of things to protect their safety in a public environment with strangers? Are they teachable or is this just something that you can't overcome? It's, it's very hard because their impulse control is so weak. And that's actually one of the differences between Down syndrome, too, because people with Down syndrome tend to be very friendly and affectionate but they are more teachable in that way. Um, People with Williams can know on an intellectual level that they shouldn't be hugging strangers um, and they still can't stop themselves from doing it. So that's what was happening for Gail in the three years that I followed them is, you know, she was constantly policing his hugging and, and he would go up to a stranger after being told, okay, we're going into this restaurant. Don't hug anyone. And he would say, got it, mom. And he would go in. And as soon as he sees someone, He's just barreling towards them with open arms. And as he's hugging this person, he'll say, sorry, mom. (laughs) So I met another woman who she's in her 30s now, extremely high functioning. Her IQ is nearly normal. She lives semi-independently. And so she really is hyper aware of 
okay, I need to give people their space. I need to not smother them with affection. But it's so strongly kind of wired into her that I was talking to her once and she was kind of just drifting closer to me as we talked. And then she put her arm out to step an arm's length away from me. And she said, I have to remind myself an arm's length away. <laughs> so it's just really interesting that it's such a strong impulse that it's it's really hard to, to train people not to do that. So what is the long-term outlook for a boy like Eli? He's presumably around 16 now? He's 18. 18. Yeah. Will he be able to live independently? And in terms of the other physical components, is his life expectancy the same as a person without Williams syndrome? Luckily, Eli doesn't have the heart defect that I mentioned earlier, or he, he has it a little bit, but it's very, very mild. Of course, that can change at any time. So that's really the thing that that would be the worry as far as his life expectancy. Otherwise, he should be able to have a normal lifespan. As far as living independently, I don't think that's really in the cards for him. And Gail doesn't really think it's in the cards. And what she would like to do is just keep him with her as long as she can. But there are other things that are still up in the air. So he's 18. He just graduated from high school. And because he has special needs, he's entitled to three more years in the public school system, but that will be for life skills and vocational training. So there's still kind of time to see what kind of a job he could have or if he could go into a work environment and and do something that might be fulfilling for him. But there's still a lot of questions about what he'll be able to accomplish. Having decided that you were interested in, in looking into Williams syndrome and doing a little bit of research, how did actually getting to know and spend time with someone with Williams syndrome like Eli affect your initial impressions and ideas about it? Well, I think the reason that it was so interesting to me is because I consider myself an introvert. I feel very awkward in social interactions. I don't like having to interact with strangers. So hearing about this, I was like, oh, I kind of want to study that and just see, <laughs> see if I can pick up some of their ways. But I also just thought, this is a terrifying condition. I mean, you're so vulnerable. You're so open to the world. And to me, it was just a recipe for trouble. And so actually what surprised me the most is watching Eli just walk up to people who I would never approach, either because I don't really approach strangers in general, but also people who didn't look friendly to me. Like I, I didn't think they'd want to talk to this stranger and hug him. 90% of the time or more, People were really friendly, and a lot of them just seemed to really respond so positively to his approaches. And it just seemed like he was really having an impact on people that was beyond what I would have expected. And you could tell that he really made people stay. So I guess the thing that I learned, too, is that his kindness was sort of more likely to bring out the kindness in other people and not just be sort of a trigger for bullies and people who would want to take advantage Oh, I want to end on that note. That is such a positive uh, way to, to, to see it. Jennifer, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. The book, again, is called The Boy Who Loved Too Much, A True Story of Pathological Friendliness by Jennifer Latson. Daniel Meneker joins us now to talk about two books that he reviews this week in the book review. Hi, Dan. Hi. Nice to be here. Let's talk about the two books. So first, the titles. Awkward, 
The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome. That's a message I'm eager to hear by Tai Tashiro, Ph.D., author of The Science of Happily Ever After. And then a more familiar name to many people, maybe not in this context, Alan Alda has a new book called If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? My Adventures in the Art and Science of Relating and Communicating. In both cases, the titles are almost half the books. I mean, they do go on, but I guess that's a new thing now. There's a link between these two books that I thought of immediately, but it's really only personal to me. So I'll tell that little story, and then I I want to hear actually how these two books relate to each other, which is that I recently wrote an elevator with Alan Alda, and it was awkward because it was awkward just in that inherent way that when you're confronted with any celebrity is awkward because we're both in the elevator. It was just the two of us. And I was sitting there thinking, like, I know that you're Alan Alda, and I know that you know that I know that you're Alan Alda. And yet, what is there to say to him other than, like, I know that you're Alan Alda, or something incredibly cliched, like, I love your thing, or whatever, which actually (laughs) I've learned that most celebrities really do want you to say, even though it's a cliche. I always feel like they don't want you to say it because it's a cliche. But they are celebrities, and they want you to celebrate them for the most part. Well, in this instance, I did nothing but stand there very awkwardly. And once he got out of the elevator, I realized that, in fact, I had met Alan Alda the previous summer. Um, But in that weird way with celebrities where you think you know them and then you realize, no, I don't know them. It's just because they're famous that I think that I know them. I actually realized I did know him. And I just like (laughs) conflated it with the not knowing of other celebrities. So now that that's out of the way, how do these two books relate? Why look at them together? Well, because they were assigned to me together. And we were, I was trying to cover that up. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and because actually the assignment, once I read them both, made very great sense. And they're both really about communication in a very root way, how to get stuff across to other people. And in one case, the difficulty or the obstacle between what you might want to say to one set of people, that is to say, If you're a scientist or a doctor and you're trying to speak to laymen, you may run up against the kind of challenge of having technical and scientific language. And Alan Alda's book kind of addresses that in a very targeted way, how to get across information that is recondite or technical to laymen who are perfectly intelligent but just aren't aware of the lingo. He uses acting techniques and improvisation techniques to do so. And the other book has a similar challenge, which is if you're socially awkward, which Dr. Tashiro claims, and with good reason, is a category on the sort of Asperger's autism spectrum, but not as intense as that, you also have a kind of obstacle to get over, which is your own awkwardness. So they both are about sort of clearing the obstacles to communication. In one case, between professions, and in another case, from one person to another. See, I guess I I think of awkward as being such a normal and universal phenomenon that it doesn't occur to me that it would be on any kind of spectrum other than like mildly awkward to extremely awkward. What is awkwardness? He's very convincing about that. I was very skeptical about whether it was just a way to write a social science book and kind of take an ordinary state of mind or way of communicating and turning it into something categorizable. But he shows, in fact, in a very interesting way that there are certain sort of psychometric tests that do allow for a grouping of people below the kind of Asperger spectrum who really have a hard time in a kind of 
ongoing way, continuous way. And the main thing about awkward people, according to Tashiro, again, it's very convincing, is that they have a tendency to spotlight things that they're interested in to the detriment of a general social understanding. So they kind of zero in and focus on particular areas, objects, or subjects of interest to the exclusion of ordinary chit-chat and how do you do and cocktail party stuff. Now, if you kind of ascend on that spectrum to Asperger's, it's much more noticeable. And I was very skeptical, but when I got done reading the book, I was convinced that there is such a legitimate group of, loose group of people whom we've all met. The subtitle of Awkward, Tashiro's book, is The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome. So why is that awesome? He quotes um, a social scientist uh, very convincingly, a woman with really fine credentials, talking about a phrase, I'm not sure if she made it up or if it comes from someone else, the rage to master. People who are awkward socially often have, again, this very intense interest in particular things, particular subjects, and they can be very dogged and very determined to solve certain kinds of problems or to investigate certain kinds of subjects that other people might not have that intensity to do. And the awesomeness comes from his assessment of various people whom one might consider to be awkward, sort of famous people, I suppose, like Steve Jobs, for instance, obviously, who have made remarkable discoveries and and sort of had amazing insights precisely because they're sort of over-focused. They are spotlighted, and that's the awesomeness. The rage to master. I remember Edward O. Wilson once saying that one of the reasons he concentrated on ants for the first 20 years of his life before he became a world-famous philosopher and scientist is that he just couldn't stop watching ants. And I think he was an awkward person for some time, and somewhat famously so, who has grown now into what Yeats calls a smiling public man. Very good at it. I want to talk about our other book under consideration here. Here's one fact about Alan Alda that fans of his writing and his acting and everything else might not be aware of, which is that he is the founder of the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. And I want to know what this center does. Well, in the review, because I'm looking at the book with mixed reactions, I may give short shrift to that as a subject. Alan Alda has done an amazing job at Stony Brook with regard to teaching scientists and doctors in particular, people who are involved in the sort of technical professions, which Stony Brook actually concentrates on to a large extent, in how to communicate their ideas and sometimes vital information with regard to medical situations to laymen, people who may either be afraid or ignorant or frightened or just interested. And he does it, according to the book, by teaching the experts, so to speak, some of the methods of improvisational acting, of improv. And it's interesting. And evidently, People who go to his lectures or attend his courses become much better at communicating with lay people, and, and bravo. 
It's interesting because improv, I've read an article recently about some other unexpected use for improv. And I've taken improv classes before. Now I sort of feel like improv heals and, you know, corrects for everything. What is the role of improv and communication, according to Alda? Well, when you do improv with someone, if it's real improv, not rehearsed, you <laughs> that seems like an oxymoron well, rehearsed no, improv. Not necessarily. There are degrees of improv in improv. Okay. Some of it is improvissimo and some of it is just improv. He talks about techniques like mirroring and especially being being mindful of your audience's attention or lack thereof which is what you do when you interact with someone on a stage when you have improv you you sort of you improvise according to the eye contact according to expression according to body language and so on and that's how you get people in an audience to believe that you are in fact interacting and he says that can be used between for instance patients and doctors and that doctors would be well served to know these these techniques and these social cues in order to understand whether they're getting across their, not only their information, but their concern and their involvement to the people they're dealing with. Because we've all had experiences with physicians and perhaps with scientists where we felt sort of in the dark, not only because the information was complicated, but because the way it was delivered was not particularly in touch with us. And he makes a good case about that. Now I feel like we should all be asking our doctors before if they've taken an improv <laughs> class and was it one with Alan Alda. But you said that you, you, you read this and reviewed it with sort of mixed feelings. Why? Well, what does the book I, do know, well the, and not the do effort, well? And... The effort is worthy. The cause is worthy. It has been put to what I understand to be and I'm convinced is really good use with regard to the people who have sort of taken or who understand the the, the ideas here. The problem with many social psychology books, there's two in my opinion. One is that they tend to sort of collect studies from many different places, mm -hmm. some of which are written for publication and academic credit, and you can feel the sort of effort of will behind them because the conclusions can be fairly obvious. The thing in Aldous' book is that I think that once he establishes his method and his idea and his hope, it's hard to keep on writing an entire book about yeah. it. And he tends to circle back on the same points. Not that they're worthless or anything close to that, but just repetitive. Right. Study, study, study. Yeah. Personal anecdote. Anecdote about someone else. Thank study, you. study, study. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, Would you like to trade places? That's much better. <laughs> <laughs> what about Awkward, the Tai Tashiro book? Did he manage to sort of escape that trap? He, I think he did to, to a large extent, although there's a good deal of the same kind of pop psych problem which is, you know, putting together a lot of different studies and coming up with some conclusions. The difference is, in a way, that he himself, even in his writing, can be awkward. I'd say 5 to 10% of this book is given over to what I remember as an awkward scene at a junior high school dance between Tashiro and a young girl that he was infatuated with, he danced with her. She held him closer. She whispered something to him. He wanted to kiss her, and you're thinking, go on, kiss her. And then 
at a moment when I think she says something like, I've never felt, this is like a 14-year-old girl, I've never felt this way about someone before, he goes in for the kiss, right? And she turns his head, and she, he says, I got a mouthful of hair. And to this day, in this book, he thinks he didn't read the signals. And I wanted to say, you read them. She was teasing you. She was leading you on. But he doesn't know that. And I found that so charming. It was so sweet. And there are about five or six moments in this book where she comes across as so genuine and almost naive. And it, it gives the book a kind of seasoning of the very subject it's talking about. So he admits up front that he is one of these awkward people. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons he wrote the book. So that if he goes to kiss you and doesn't do it right, you'll know that he's not good at reading the signals. So that's interesting. So he wrote this book because he suffers from this, this I don't know if it's if we can elevate it to the level of a syndrome, but he Social has this attribute. Um, problem. And Alan Alder wrote this book because he can help you get rid of this social attribute in certain ways. Yes. So there's the link. That should be the last paragraph. All right. Well, let it be the last paragraph <laughs> of our podcast here. Dan, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Daniel Meneker reviewed for us two books this week. If I understood you, would I have this look on my face? My Adventures in the Art and Science of Relating and Communicating by Alan Alda. And Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome by Tai Tashiro. And I should mention that Dan himself is the former executive editor-in-chief of Random House and the author of many books, including a memoir that I love called My Mistake, and A Good Talk, The Story and Skill of Conversation. Joining us now, Alexandra Alter here with news from the literary world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. What's going on? So before we talk about what's happening, I wanted to return to a segment from a couple of weeks ago where we were discussing Arundhati Roy's new novel, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness, which, of course, came out 20 years after her debut novel, The God of Small Things. I wanted to correct a detail that I mentioned when I was discussing some of the issues that have preoccupied Roy in the decades since she published her debut novel. One of the things she's been deeply involved in is activism in support of victims of the Bhopal disaster. And I mistakenly referred to it as a new nuclear disaster, when in fact, of course, it was a toxic gas leak. And it was probably the world's worst industrial disaster. And it's still kind of unfolding. You know, victims are still suffering from the effects. So hopefully it's, you know, one of the issues that she continues to work on as well as getting back to writing. So I wanted to clarify that. All right. Official corrections policy of the podcast fulfilled. Okay. (laughs) And now to the latest news. The latest news, there have been a couple of interesting announcements recently of deals and one that caught my eye because, of course, this is something I was obsessed with for the better part of a year recently related to To Kill a Mockingbird and Harper Lee's estate. They recently announced that there will be a graphic novel adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird, the first one, of course, to come out of that novel and the first one that's officially received the stamp of approval from her estate. That'll be coming out in November 2018. It's being published here in the U.S. by Harper, the same publisher that publishes To Kill a Mockingbird, of course, and it'll be published in the U.K. At the same time, there's going to be a Broadway adaptation and other things. I thought it was an interesting kind of format to reimagine To Kill a Mockingbird in, and it turns out there's a number of classic novels that are adapted into graphic novels, and it's one of the most popular categories in publishing right now. 
it did better, I think, than many other categories in 2016. The sales for graphic novels were up. The only other categories that are really growing kind of steadily and markedly are audiobooks. So I thought that was interesting. We don't want to read. <laughs> <laughs> Which Show is me fine. pictures That's or okay. tell me a story. And um, of course, there is another one that people are excited about coming out. It's a graphic novel adaptation of Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, which is doing tremendously well in novel form right now on account of the television show and, of course, the renewed interest in all things dystopia. So that's something that people are really anticipating. And, you know, I started looking into other popular graphic novels. Almost any classic novel you can think of, it seems, has been adapted. So you can get a Marvel comic version of Pride and Prejudice. There's a Kafka's Metamorphosis graphic novel, The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Engel. There are graphic novel adaptations of everything now, not just fiction, but biography, history, of course. March was really successful, the uh, representative John Lewis's graphic novel based on the civil rights movement. And one of the ones that crossed my desk recently that's just out is a graphic novel adaptation of Marie Kondo's bestseller, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, which is kind of funny. I can imagine, you know, this book is all about decluttering, so it's sort of funny that you would think people would get multiple editions of it, but it's called The Life-Changing Manga of Tidying Up. It came out on June 27th, and it's interesting because I, I imagine the audience for these graphic novels are not people that are looking for a Cliff's Notes version of, of those books themselves, but perhaps they're fans, really avid fans, and want to experience them in a different way. Yeah, it's about seeing like another format and the way another person interprets the book. There's exactly. also, you know, a lot of manga versions of classic novels. They just came out with two new ones, The the Jungle Book in a manga adaptation and The Count of Monte Cristo, which were very popular in my house. So lots of ways to read the classics. I remember when I was little, what we got were these like little teeny chunky abridgments of the classics. Did you have those? They were on a spinning rack, like in the stationery store. That, but I, would have I was loved persuaded it. that I read like <laughs> The Hunchback of Notre Dame and everything. I was like, wow, check it off my list. I would have much preferred these graphic novel and manga versions if they'd been available. Me too. All right. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Joining us now, our posse of readers, Greg Coles, John Williams, Pearl Sagal. Hi, guys. Hi, hey, Pamela. All right. Let's start with Pearl because she has the oldest, rattiest looking book in front yeah, of her. Yeah, I have this like moldering book. So, I mean, I think there's a, there's a kind of bird that follows other animals and sort of like eats what they leave behind. <laughs> and I think that that's who I am in life, particularly where Greg Coles is concerned. <laughs> because every now and then he takes like... I, I see him walking past my desk with an armful of books that he's discarding and putting on our discard shelf. And then at that point, like I, you know, go and skulk behind him. And he always has something good that he's done with or not going to read. And this, so I'm, what I'm I, reading. I suspect Pearl does this actually at my desk before <laughs> yeah. I discard them. I was going to say there's like a negative interpretation of <laughs> this. which is negative like, interpretation. Right, which is like, you know, Greg obviously has terrible taste and oh is setting God. these things aside. <laughs> I will go. And Pearl will salvage and them. her incredible cheapness. <laughs> no, it's all a question of space, alas. Um, so I, I picked up this book that he discarded a few months ago. It's called The Art of Fact, a historical anthology of literary journalism. And, you know, it's an anthology of sort of classic profiles and pieces from Daniel Defoe to Didion, a lot of which I'd read over the years, but a whole bunch of stuff I haven't. You know, my ignorance is always galling. And there's a really, there's, there's a, a lot of like lovely stuff in here from Boswell. But the big surprise to me has been 
Norman Mailer, which I've, I've read him like little pieces, you know, here and there, executioner's song, but have always harbored this kind of reflexive contempt. Dislike. <laughs> but you don't like the punching thing? You know what I mean? The punching, the stabbing of wives, the where does, where does, what is yeah, and, and I mean, there's a real narcissism a narciss- in Mailer you know that, that really hurts the fiction, but he was a great nonfiction but writer. He's, okay, he's, He's also just so charming and funny and self-aware. And so he has this, there's an excerpt. Especially early mailer before he kind of started bloviating. Totally, totally. But it, so there's an excerpt in this from Armies of Night, which is his participant observer of the march on Washington. And there's a, the entire chapter is just basically him at a at a book party and just being desperately paranoid, being like, that guy, he's reviewing my book badly. This guy... You know, he's looking at my wife. So <laughs> a march on Washington is going on and he's just interested in who's Please doing it. It is, And he totally knows. And he refers to himself. And the entire book is written. He refers to himself in third person. And he goes, in Swagger's mailer. <laughs> it's just, so it's just so in other words, the narcissism is there in full flower in the you know, nonfiction, too. It just totally, doesn't hurt it as much. cheeky. He knows it. And he's sort of like sending him up like his marriages and his, uh, it's just, it's, it's great fun. So, so I, there's I highly, notations there. These oh, oh my these are my are those yours or yeah Craig's? these are my like, <laughs> my hearts in the margins being like oh Norm you know? <laughs> so uh, yeah constantly surprising myself so I'm I'm a I'm a Mailer fan this week what are you reading John <laughs> I was away last week I went to Iceland for a week which was amazing and as always I overpacked books I always take with me you know five or six books on vacation and then read about thirty pages of one of them <laughs> um, and that's exactly what happened this time and I packed. Four books by Haldor Laxness, who is the Icelandic Nobel Prize winner. And his big sort of most famous book is called Independent People, and it's about probably 450 pages. And it's very dense, and it's a lot about, like, the myths and the sagas that the Icelandic people tell. So and quickly cast that aside. <laughs> no, I, I did. I did. I took it in the airplane, and on the way there, I read about 30 pages of it. And it was really good, but I could just tell from the density of it that I wasn't really going to make much progress. So, And then I read nothing else the entire time I was there. And that's why you were so happy on I'm, Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> My head happy on Instagram, the John books. Williams story. Maybe I should just not read anymore. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't Iceland that made me happy. <laughs> um, so I started a thinner book of his called Under the Glacier, which is a, a very funny novel about the Bishop of Iceland sending this emissary to a small town where there's rumors that they are not properly burying their dead in the sort of sacred Christian manner and to find out what's going on. And so the emissary goes there and sends these dispatches back. And I'm not very far into it, but it just has such a different tone from independent people, which has some funny moments, but it's just very epic and sweeping. And this is very light on its feet. There's almost like like a wall-like dialogue between people. And uh, I think by the time I finish it next week, I'll probably have a couple of choice bits to quote before going into whatever I'm reading. Given the title, I I was sort of hoping you'd describe it as like the Icelandic version of Under the Volcano, the Malcolm Lowry, (laughs) like drinking oneself to death. (laughs) Nobody's doing that yet, but it's dark and cold, so maybe they'll start soon. Greg, what about you? Well, it's officially summer now, and I am still firmly in escapist mode. I'm I'm reading Miley Malloy's new novel, Do Not Become Alarmed, which is a kind of high-spirited, rollicking adventure story about a group of American children who get lost in the Central American rainforest when they're separated from the crews that they were on with their families. And Malloy, she's a gifted writer. She's been one of the book review's 10 best for her story collection, Both Ways is the Only Way I Want It. And the plot here just kind of gallops along where there's a 
kind of sly undercurrent about parenting styles and the softening of America's youth, but mostly it just feels like a good old-fashioned yarn. Just leave your kids in the jungle the way they used to in the 70s. I I kept thinking of like Kidnapped or Pippi Longstocking or those great Joan Aiken books, um, The Wolves of Willoughby Chase or Nightbirds on Nantucket. It's it's a kids in danger book. I, I heard Malloy say that she had set out to write a book like the 1929 novel A High Wind in Jamaica by Richard Hughes, which I have never read. It's about children captured by pirates, and I I might have to read that one next. (laughs) That's that's often recommended to me. (laughs) Pamela, what are you reading? So I finished The Egg and I by Betty McDonald, and I enjoyed it a lot. There was sort of a little unfortunate episode in the end where there's a kind of interesting commentary or anecdotes along the way about the Native Americans who lived in the area at the time. And it kind of goes into this somewhat racist territory, mm. somewhat being um, a gentle term here, <laughs> um, where all of the you know Native Americans are, are drunk and abusive and out to rape white people like her. So that sort of part aside, the book was published in 1945. I did really love it. And I found myself like on the edge of the rabbit hole of like just being like, okay, now I will enter into Betty McDonald territory because she has a fascinating story that I only know the edges of it, but she died at age 50 of cancer. And I know that she got some terrible disease and spent time, I think, quite quite some time in a sanatorium. And that's the subject of her. Another book she wrote called The Plague, which I like draws me in just on subject matter alone. Yeah. So and then I I found on our discard shelves a biography of her, Not surely mine. something that Greg cast <laughs> off, uh, called Looking for Betty McDonald, The Egg, The Plague, Mrs. Pigglewiggle, and I. Oh, how so, fortuitous, just like that. Just like oh, that. I know, it was like a little magical gift. So I, I quickly made off with it, and when I'm ready to go into that rabbit hole, I'll go into that. But last week's podcast led me somewhat astray off my Betty McDonald project because Judith Newman came on, as uh, listeners may remember, to talk about books about people dying. And, you know, I think, Carl, you share this interest. Deep passion, yes. Deep passion for, like, people dying, the more tragically and Take horribly. your time, slow it down. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> dark, dark, dark. Um, and, um, and, and Don't this, rush it for me. That's right. <laughs> and she ended her review with a very positive bit on this book called The Bright Hour by Nina Riggs, A Memoir of Living and Dying, which looks to be doing quite well with readers. It's gotten a lot of great notice. And Nina is a poet, and what makes her sort of backstory kind of interesting is she's, I think I'm going to probably miss a great, but I think she's a great, great, great granddaughter of Ralph Waldo Emerson. And so she weaves some of that history and some of his writing into her story, which of course is a sad one. Um, it does not end well. This is a posthumous book. She was diagnosed with cancer. It was a terrible metastatic form of breast cancer. And then, you know, it seemingly goes away only to, you know, come back and kill her. And she's the mother of two children. And But she she's really likable. Um, there, there are portions of it that are extremely well written. And, and that's that. So I'm going to read it to the, the, the very sad ending. And then next week, you'll tell us all about Betty McDonald's early death. That's right. So I'll just go from there to the plague and just you know, keep on going. And then Pearl can come and, and gather my crumbs. <laughs> right. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Mm-hmm.